this morning. Going to sort of um, continue on with the theme that I started last week. I want to talk about loving the presence of God. And this is, uh, this is a place for us to do that. All right. Let's read the, let's read the scripture together. Uh, Psalm 84. We'll just read the whole thing. We've already read it once this morning. We're going we're gonna to read it again. <clears throat> Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, for they are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows his favor and his honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Father, even this morning, we ask that, you, that your spirit would just be so rich among us. God, we, we experience you during worship and we're appreciative. And Father, now we want to experience you in the word. And God, I ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive you now. God, I ask that you would con- continue to make us more aware of your presence in the room right now. You're welcome here, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, last week we were talking about just our number one value here at the Vineyard is the presence of God. And when I talk about our number one value being the presence of God here at the Vineyard, what I mean is that our value uh, for the presence of God is, I'm talking about, it, it's beyond a theological construct, it's beyond theory, and it must be a reality. Uh, we, we, we don't, what we don't value here is just a mere doctrine of the presence of God. Uh, you know, as good as having a doctrine of God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere all the time, is it's utterly useless if you don't get to experience the God who's everywhere all the time. What good is a theology of omniscience? What good is a, is a theology of omnipresence if you don't get to encounter the God who's everywhere all the time? And so our number one value here at the Vineyard is, is that we want to live lives not in theory mode, but we want to live lives in reality mode, and we want to, we want to live life where I can meet the God of heaven who's everywhere all the time. It's not for special people. It's not for the select. It's not for the few, but it's for everyone. If he's everywhere all the time, how can it be for one person? You know, we live, we live with these, these concepts that, you know, God meets the really spiritual person or God meets the really special person. He doesn't. He just meets the regular dude. And it, we see it in the lives of the disciples. When Jesus chose the 12 to go and hang out with him, he chose the most common and normal people ever. He chose Peter and James and John. They were just all fishermen. And one of the things that, that, that I get received great comfort from knowing is this, is that there was utterly nothing remarkable about Peter, James, or John other than they had been with Jesus. We have, we have a value for the presence of God. We, wanna, we, wanna, we want to experience the, the sticky, heavy, weighty, tangible presence of God, like we did in worship this morning. Were you guys aware of that? 
like one guy came up to me after worship and he said, I came in with, with a lot of pain in my neck and about 80% of it left after worship. No one prayed for him. Just, it's just that the king of glory comes in. Like when the king of glory comes into the room, he brings his kingdom with him. And where his kingdom is, there is kingdom rule. And where there's kingdom rule, everything gets set right, right down to your neck. See, that's, we laugh. That's not uncommon. That's normal. That's normal. It's, it's uncommon for us to have a, a church experience where we don't encounter the presence of God, where we're not aware that the King of Glory has come in, where His rule and reign doesn't affect anything. It'd be so strange to go, for thir- to, go to church for 30 years and have, have nothing change after 30 years. Be the same person, saying the same things, with the same heart condition, with the same ailments. Well, that's not who we are. We want, we want to be people who encounter the presence of God. And it's, it's the foundation of who we are here at the Vineyard. Um, and everything that we are here at the Vineyard flows out of our encounter with God. It's the reason that the first banner we have is the presence of God. Everything flows out of an experience with the presence of God. And so as we look at Psalm 84 this morning, I, I want to continue this theme of, of loving the presence of God, encountering the presence of God, and and uh, what I want to say is this, is that, uh, that we're presence people, and Psalm 84 is the, is the heart cry of presence people. Okay, what does it sound like? What does it look like to be a presence person? What does it look like for the presence of God to be the, the number one value in your life? It's Psalm 84. And we've read it a couple times this morning. We're going to break it down a little bit. And some of you might go, well, might think or might feel while we're reading this, wow, that says exactly what's in my heart. Good. Embrace it more. Don't deviate from it. Let it be the boundary of your life. Others of us in the room may feel like, wow, I would like to feel that way, but I certainly don't feel that way. I, my, I want to feel that way toward God. I want my heart and my flesh to cry out for the living God, but that's not the way I feel. Well, then let it be the boundary of your life. Let it be the prayer. Let it be, let it be the log that falls on your fire. Let it be, let it be the stoke. The, the log that gets stoked in your furnace. Let it be the encouragement. Let it be the model life. This is, this is who we are. Like, one of the th- I really feel like this is an important scripture for our church uh, in, the, in, the, in these coming days. This is the model for us. This is our heart's cry this morning. Not just today. We're going to move on. We're going to teach and we're going to go some different places this year. But this is an anchor for us all year long. What is it? We're presence people. Our heart and our flesh cry out for the living God. That's, that's our word. Like, that's going to be our anchor. And it's kind of a big deal because I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but over the last, I don't even know, I, I hate to even put a time period on it, but I will. Uh, over the last couple months, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've certainly noticed that the presence of God among us has become sweeter, more apparent, like I, I work less and encounter Him more. You know what I'm talking about? Like I, I come to church and I go, wow, He's really here. And... You know, we get in worship, and I, my heart, you guys saw me the one morning I'm over here, just on the floor, you know. But w- one of the things I feel like from the Lord, and I was telling the staff and the elders this this week, I really feel like we're in a moment right now at the vineyard uh, where we're just in a, in a new move of the Spirit, and it's embryonic. I think it's really small right now. I, I, think, it's, I think it's just a little tiny baby, but I think we're, we're in a brand new move of the Spirit. I think something's happened in the heavens, over this place right now, and we're just, we're encountering, we're encountering God in a new way. And anyone whose heart is turned toward God, even like one degree, he's meeting us so much more, you know? Which is why we need, we need this boundary that scripture provides for us here. 
Okay? We're presence people, and because we're presence people, um, this is our heart's cry. Look at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. We'll stop right there. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Another, another translation might render that. How lovely are your tents, or how lovely is your tabernacle. At this point, when, the, when this psalm was written, uh, the presence of God was located at the temple. And at the temple, well, it actually wasn't a temple, it was a tabernacle, which is different. You know, you know the difference? The tabernacle was like a tent. It started with Moses. Moses had a tent. He had a big tent, and then he had a medium tent, and then he had a small tent inside the medium tent. That's what it was. Moses had a tabernacle tent. David built the tabernacle tent, and then eventually Solomon built the stone and mortar temple. Okay, So the, the, so the psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place? How lovely are your tents? How lovely is your tabernacle? And what he's really saying is this. He's really saying that God, the most lovely place in the world is wherever you're at. The, the real translation on that is, is, is really simple. It's not just how lovely is your dwelling place. It's, it's, it's like this. I want to be where you're at. Wherever you're at is beautiful. You realize God's presence was in a tent and in a desert. And the psalmist says, it's beautiful. How can a tent in the desert be beautiful? It's beautiful because God's there. There was a big tent, there was a medium tent, there was a small tent, and inside the small tent that no one could go in except for the high priest, there was a box. And God was in the box. Everybody talks about God being in the box, we've got to get God out of the box. Well, he came out of the box, but there was a time when he did live in the box. I worked hard on that all week. So this is our heart's cry. How lovely is your dwelling place? Our, the heart cry that we need to have here at the vineyard is this. God, wherever you're at, wherever you're moving, it's beautiful and I want to be there. It's like, it's like people who are in love, especially at the very beginning. Have you ever like, overheard a phone conversation of two people who are just beginning to fall in love? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's like you run out of the room. It's like my ears are burning. You guys are freaking me out. I do not want to be around you. That's our heart toward the Lord. God, wherever you're at, that's where I want to be. Oh, baby, just wherever you're at, that's where I want to be. I'm so happy. It doesn't matter. No, babe, just go. Just, dude, I love you. No, baby, no, no. No. No, just, yeah, baby, I love you. You're my favorite. You laugh because you've been there. Some of, you know, this is totally off topic, but you know the worst moment in that, all that? The worst moment is like if you're in the room with those two by yourself. Like the third wheel, wow, that's uncomfortable. How lovely is your dwelling place? This is our, this is our calling card right here. Verse number two, my soul yearns and it even faints for the courts of the Lord. See, it's actually amplified times a million. My soul yearns and even faints for the Lord. What the psalmist is saying is, my sustenance, my food is with you. And if I don't have you, God, then I'm going to pass out. I'm, anybody ever, hear, ever felt like they were going to just totally pass out from like hunger and starvation? Like you went on a fast or maybe you just forgot to eat and like, like four in the afternoon and your blood sugar goes to your feet and... It's the heart cry of the person who, who, whose number one goal in life is the presence of God. You know, there's, there's more food in life than just food, and it's the presence of God. That has to be our heart cry. Jesus says, 
you know, man doesn't live on bread alone. He, he reamplified that. We, why did I do that? Because there's just certain things I can't even make a word for. <clears throat> My soul yearns and it even faints for the courts of the Lord. Verse number two, it's about coming into God's presence. It's about saying, God, wherever you're at, that's where I want to be. And when the psalmist says the courts of the Lord, what he's getting at is two things. Number one, he's getting at, God, I want to be wherever you're at. I want to be in your presence. I want to be in the court of your presence. I don't want to just dwell in the desert. I want to be in the court of your presence. But he's also getting at something else. Because the outer courts was, was the place that everyone could come to. If you were a Jew, you could go there. If you were a Gentile, you could go there. If you were a man, you could go there. If you were a woman, if you were a baby, everyone could go there. And so part of what the psalmist is saying is, God, I want to be in your presence. I want to give my whole heart to being in your presence. Wherever you're at is where I want to be. And what the other thing he's saying is, I want to be with your people who want to be with you. Well, this is a really big deal because it's the communal cry. It's not just my cry, but it's our cry. My soul yearns and even faints for you. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. This can't just be my cry. It just can't be your cry. It has to be our cry together. When we, when, when we talk about encountering the Spirit of God, when we talk about encountering the presence of God, you cannot divorce encountering the presence of God apart from meeting His people along the way. There is, there is no part of a greater encounter with God that takes you away from your neighbor. There is no part of increasing in intimacy with Jesus that is increasing in hatred for someone else. Uh, the, more, the, the true spiritual life is the life that encounters God and increases in love for everyone. You don't get to write people off. You know, we, we, we get to, you know sometimes, especially in America, because it's, it's just, we see this and it's modeled for us over and over again. We think it's okay to write people off. It's not okay to write people off, especially if you're going to be a presence of God person. No one ever gets written off. Even if they've hurt you and even if they've wounded you, no one gets written off. It's not okay to say to someone figuratively, you're dead to me, I'm not going to, I'll have nothing to do with you. Especially here in Campbellsville. You know why? Because they're at Walmart and you will see them at Walmart. (laughs) You will. You will be in the bread aisle and they will be in the bread aisle along with you. No one, it, it, is, it is absolutely not okay to say, I'm going to increase in love for God and at the same time write this, these people off. Or I'm going to increase in love with God and I'm, it's a solo match. I'm telling you, knowing God isn't solo tennis. It is, it, is, it is doubles all the way. Knowing God is doubles tennis all the way. There is always someone on the court with you. There, it is impossible to increase in love for God and not increase in love for the people who are around us right now. This is not just a solo cry of the heart. It's a communal cry of the heart. And there's a measure of God's presence that is reserved for when we're all here together. God will do certain things only when we're all together. There there is a part of his heart. There's a part of his nature. There's a part of who he is that is only revealed when we're all together. Well, this just really battles with our North American individualistic concept of all I need is me and Jesus forget the church. Not possible. It's impossible to be a truly spiritual, it's impossible to be a truly presence of God-oriented person and say, me and Jesus, we're okay, forget the church. Not possible. The closer I get to God, the closer I I get to his people. You know why? 
Because every single person in the room has the Spirit of God in them. Everybody in here has the Spirit of God in them. It, it, it's a bit, it works a bit logically. The closer I get to God, the closer I get to the Spirit of God that rests in Stephen. And it's, not, it's never okay for me to write Stephen off for any reason. It's, it's the illegal. The Spirit of God dwells in him. How can I get close to God and hate my brother? This is our communal cry. This is our communal cry. Certain things he'll only do when we're together. Um, I don't have really time to tell the stories, but I can tell you just from my own experience, the most powerful deliverances I've ever seen have been communal. They haven't been the isolated one-on-one things. They've been communal. The most, the most powerful, like, just get delivered from a whole thing has, has been communal. Because in community, or in the courts of the Lord, that's where we have, that's where we have the power of the corporate amen. I, I, I don't know any other way. I'm looking for language here, and I don't really have it. But there is a power in the corporate amen. There, there is something that happens in the Spirit when we can all together, in one heart, give an amen to something. And I'm not talking about just the words, but when we can just all agree, when we can all testify to the goodness of the Lord, to His, his movement, to his, uh, his favor on a person. There, there's a power in that that is just, it's remarkable, it's real, and it's, um, it's something that, that God's leading us into as he leads us into his presence. Uh, one of my favorite uh, places in the scripture is, is Psalm 133. We won't put it on the overhead, I'll just tell you about it and you can read it this week. But Psalm 133, a lot of you probably are familiar with it. It's how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil on the head, even on Aaron's head, on Aaron's beard, and down his robes. There is an anointing that's only in community. There's an anointing. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place of his presence. There's a place of his favor. There's a place of anointing. There's a place of power that's only in community. And, and it's, it's, here's the deal. It's, it's at a certain level, it's, it's top down. God, God places anointing on people and we can only feed from that to the extent that we're a part of that body, to the extent that we're a part of, of that fellowship and that community. God anointed Aaron and went down his head, onto his beard, all the way down his robes and that speaks to flowing to everyone else. This is one of the reasons that we need each other. When, when, when one of us in the room comes into anointing, everyone in the room comes into anointing. Everyone who's willing to say yes. Stay in community, not have an offended heart, not build a wall of resentment, not let jealousy put a boundary around what God was intending on giving you through someone else. Psalm 133 goes on to say that's where the Lord commands a blessing. There's commanded blessing when we're together. There's there's just certain things that will only happen when we're together. After His presence. God believes in unity so much he believes in unity and he believes in community so much that it's, it's not just a spiritual law, but it's actually a natural law. It's, it's written into actually the fabric of the universe. It's, it, this is totally insane. Um, I, I'm just, I, I grew up pretty hickish. Is that a word? It's evidence that I'm a hick. <clears throat> yeah, and um, my, dad is, my dad was born like 100, 150 years too late. 
he's a, he's a mountain man. <clears throat> this has nothing to do with anything other than just to tell you how my dad is. I, I remember being a kid, and we were uh, shoeing horses in this barn one day. I, I, wasn't, I was just watching. And uh, dad was putting shoes on this horse. And if you've ever shot a horse, you, the one thing that you hate for the horse to do while you're shoeing him is like when you pick up the horse's foot, they'll want to lay on you. My dad hated that. He'd take that little hammer and pop that horse right in the side, you know. Finally, this horse just keeps laying on my dad and almost hurt him. And I saw my dad put the horse's foot down, throw the hammer down, and punch that horse in the face and knock it straight on the ground. We're talking a big animal. Peter's going to love that. That has nothing to do with what I wanted to say. It just popped in my mind. I just, my dad's a mountain man. You don't want to mess with him, all right? But growing up, my dad liked horses, and even though he, you know, even though he did punch the one, he did like it. Um, affection runs in different ways in my family. Just ask my kids, right? No, just joking. Oh, my gosh. And... Yeah, my sense of humor is two clicks off. Anyway, um, but my dad, he loved horses, and he especially loved mules. And so this is all about community and the power of unity, and it's written into the natural life. Okay, so we're back on topic. <clears throat> but he, he liked mules, and, and so he, he broke mules sometimes to ride, and then he had some mules that he would, uh, you know, break as a team and hook them to things and, I don't know, do things, um, whatever that was. And a couple times I went with him to a, to a mule pool. And a mule pool is essentially like hook something heavy to a mule and see whose mule can go the farthest with the heaviest. I, I don't know. It, it's incredibly exciting to some people, utterly confusing and boring to me. Okay, but this is how unity is, is so, in community and, and the power of unity is so written into the natural universe. You can hook a mule up, depending on its size or whatever, to a sled, put a thousand pounds on it, and that mule will struggle to move the thousand pounds. It can move it, but it will struggle. You hook two mules to the sled, and you can put six or eight thousand pounds on it, and they'll run with it. Do the math. Any, anyone in here ever looked at a cord or a rope? See, a rope is just a lot of little ropes that are twisted together. You know, one, one, one segment of that rope would just, you know, magnolia could break it. You take 10 of those and twist them together and, no one, and not a man in this room can break it. What's the point? God believes in unity and community so much that it's written into the natural order. We need one another. There's a part of God that he will only reveal to himself as we come together. And there's a part of, of loving God and having a heart that says, my heart and soul cry out for the courts of the Lord. My heart and, and my flesh cry out for the living God. That can't just be an individual expression. It can't just be an individual search it can't just be an individual goal it has to be a corporate goal amen we're going slow at the beginning and then we'll we'll speed up through the song look at verse two my soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the lord my heart and my flesh cry out for the living god and i want you to notice something here i want you to notice that what what started as internal is beginning to come external. Look at that again. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. Where's the soul? Inside or outside? Inside. My heart. Where's the heart? Inside. My flesh. 
outside. What began on the inside is beginning to manifest on the outside. And this is a really powerful word for us this morning because we talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, it's why the Proverbs in chapter 4, I think verse 8 says, Guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. Everything that's on the inside will eventually come on the outside. If we begin to feed ourselves on the goodness of God, if I begin to feed myself on the greatness of God, it takes root in my heart, it begins to change and shape who I am, and it will eventually manifest on the outside. So some of us this morning can really connect with the fact, or can really connect with the psalmist in this heart cry this morning. My heart and my soul cry out. We're in that moment. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. We live in that moment. Some of us in here can't connect with it right now, and we go, I'd like to, but that's not, if I'm being really honest, that's not where I'm at. And the good news is this. The gar- the, the, your heart is a garden. It's actually more like a greenhouse because everything grows up in it and it amplifies. Everything that goes in gets amplified and it grows. And the good news is this, is that we can be the master and the manager and the commander over our heart. We can be the master, commander, and manager over the greenhouse of our affections and we can begin to plant in the things that we would like to see grow later. Okay? My, the, the, the cry of a community that wants to experience the presence of God has to be my heart and my flesh cry out. What is on the inside will eventually work its way on the outside. But the word of warning is this. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Right now, we are living, every party in here, everyone in here is living out of, you're, you're, you're currently in this moment, you're the person that your choices over the last five years have brought you to be. Don't like it? Time to make new choices. That went over well. But you're sitting in the purple chair of your own choices over the last five years right now. With respect to your job, your education, your family, but especially with respect to God. Want to experience more of the presence? We need to be shaped. We need to be shaped. So the psalmist says, my heart cries out. It's not just my heart, but my flesh cries out. Let's talk about having your flesh cry out. It sounds weird, but it's actually pretty normal. Um, Anyone in here ever gone on a fast and then just felt totally awful? Like really awful? That's your flesh crying out for food. Feed me. That's the picture here. That's the picture the psalmist is painting for us. Um, I'm 100% completely addicted to caffeine, especially these little devils here. I really love these. These are my favorite. And if I don't have one by 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, like at at 9 o'clock in the morning, my heart is crying out. By 2 in the afternoon, my flesh is crying out. Give me the Coke. Give me, I need the Coke. And by 4 in the afternoon, if I haven't had one, you don't want to be around me. Because I've lost all grace. You're like, dude, I didn't even know you had any. (laughs) You're right. You should just come over to my house when I don't have Coke, though. Then you'd be thankful for the way I am right now. Yeah, so I want, us to, I want us to really notice there that there's this really significant interplay between what's on the inside manifesting on the outside. So how do, how, do we get, how do we get things going on the inside right? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that all of our experiences, all of our experiences 
shape our desires, and then our desires begin to shape our experiences. See, every heart cry, every desire, every craving, and every addiction began with a taste. And the taste shaped my desires. And then my desires began to shape my longings. And my longings began to shape my actions, which brought me back into contact with more taste, which further shaped my heart. Psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you know that the Lord is good? By tasting. It's an experience. So we need an experience of the Lord. When we encounter the Lord, we need to have a yes in our spirit. Like when God shows up in worship, we need a yes in our spirit. We, we, don't, we, need to have, we need to have hearts that are not in slumber. We need to have hearts that aren't asleep. And when God comes around, we need to throw our arms around that moment and let it go deep on the inside. And we need to embrace the presence of God and the Spirit of God among us deeply. And we need to have a yes, a really powerful yes in our spirit. Because when we have a yes in our spirit to the, to the activity of God among us during worship or, or, or a home group or or like alone in Bible study, when we have a yes in our spirit, it begins to shape us. And the thing that gets shaped is our appetites and our desires. I've told you guys this uh, before. Um, when I was growing up, I did not like oysters. I thought that they were the bane of my existence. You know, it's like what the old people ate at, at, at Thanksgiving, you know. But I never ate an oyster. And then one day, I had a raw oyster with some horseradish and hot sauce and a cracker. Because I was shamed into it by a group of men. <laughs> Literally shamed. It was just, it was total guilt, manipulation, and shame. I was totally coerced and manipulated into this experience. And I ate this oyster, and I was like, what? This is incredible. The taste shaped my desires. And now when we go out, I'm like, Heather, we got, let's go eat oysters someplace, like, bunches of them like a stack of them like man versus food i want to do the 144 oyster challenge just yeah yeah when we're with god we need to have a we need to have a yes and allow it to shape shape my heart on the inside takes time but the, the shape will come and my desires will change So how lovely is your dwelling place. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This is the cry of the people who want to encounter the Spirit of God. This is what it sounds like. Some of you may be thinking, well, I'm down with that. Some of us may be thinking, I'm not so down with that. Some of us might be thinking, well, I'm just, I'm a bit more intimidated. It's so bold. I don't know if I live there. I don't even know if I want to live there. And here's the good news. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is such good news. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Even the sparrow. Uh, In the scriptures, the sparrow is consistent with the least. All through the scripture, sparrows are consistent with the least. And here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you're at the tabernacle, it's an open-air tent, and I want you to imagine that there are birds around. Can you keep the birds out of an open-air tent? can't keep the birds out of an open-air tent, can you? No, they just fly right in. 
They don't, they don't know that they should or shouldn't be there. They're just birds, right? Not only that, but the psalmist says that the sparrow not only comes in, but the sparrow and the swallow, they, they build nests for themselves. And they build a nest in God's house where God lives. Now imagine you're in this tabernacle, and it's like posts, okay, with pieces of cloth around them. And imagine that a, a little sparrow comes and builds her nest on the top of the post, on the outside border. And imagine that there are lots of sparrows, and they've built lots of nests all over posts around. And imagine the priest one day gets really frustrated with this and says, we've got to clean this place up. It's God's house. And they knock all the nests down. What happens in two weeks? There's more nests. Why? Because you can't keep birds out of an open-air tent, right? What's the point? The point is this. In Scripture, the sparrow is consistent with the least or the insignificant. The humble. And the point is this. Is that there is a place in the house of God and there's a place in the presence of God for the least and the overlooked, and the unattractive, and the nobodies. Remember Matthew chapter 6? Jesus says, hey, don't worry about your life. What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? Doesn't my father take care of the birds of the air? Then in Matthew chapter 10, he says, aren't two sparrows sold for a couple pennies? He says, not even one sparrow falls out of the sky without my father knowing about it. What's the point? The point is that somehow we have a God who counts dead birds. What kind of God counts dead birds? How many, how many of you have thought about sparrows this week? Probably almost, oh, there's like two people last night, totally ruined my illustration. Yeah, do we, do you, as a regular part of your day, do you think about the sparrows or the birds of the air? You don't, why? Because they're insignificant. Yeah, they're not insignificant to God. He thinks about them. One can't even fall to the ground without him knowing about it. He's got a little board behind him and he just goes. What's the point? Every, li- every life is important to God and there's a place for, it's a, there's a place for everyone in God's house. There's a place for the insignificant. There's a place for the unattractive. There's a place for, there's a place for ex-convicts. There's a place for failing college students. There's a place for two-time losers and stressed-out dads. There's, this, there's a place for the single and looking. There's a place for the divorced. There's a place for the abused. There's a place for single moms. There's a place for the unworthy, the passed over, the unimportant. There's a place for sparrows in God's house. That's a really good word, by the way. That's the, yeah, come on. Help me out. That's a good word. How many of you realize that the sparrows don't even deserve a place in God's temple, but they just get, they're just there. No one invited them. They just showed up, right? And not only that, but they get to have a place near his altar, a place near him. Yeah, no one invited the sparrows, but they just came in. Here's the other thing I want you to realize too. The tabernacle, the tent, and the temple didn't go out to where the birds were. The birds came to where it was. You want to encounter the presence of God? Orient your life around it. Don't wait for Him to come look for you. Orient your life around it. 
Change your heart. Turn around. Go and find it. Not having it right now, go find it. It's somewhere. He's around. He's everywhere. He can be experienced. Orient your life around it. Have at least the sense of a bird to go and fly, find a place where you can have shelter. And I love what it says. She'll have, a, even the swallow will build a nest for herself. What does that speak of? It speaks of building a life. Uh, it speaks of safety. It speaks of a home. There's a home for even the insignificant in the presence of God where she may have her young. That speaks of fruitfulness. Even the most insignificant person can be fruitful in God's house and in his presence. keep going verse 4 we're going to we're going to we're going to speed up here so don't freak out blessed are those who dwell in your house because they're ever praising you and i want you to notice here that there's this real important connection both here and in all the scriptures between dwelling in god's presence and praise and worship um, this is really a continuing thought from verse 3 if the if the birds are there all the time they're singing all the time right and it's a, it's actually a really a really great picture for us because the only reasonable spo- response for encountering the presence of God is worship. It's the, like, if you see God, the only, the only reasonable response is a life of worship. Like, no one can look at God and not worship. If you can look at God and not worship, one of two things has happened. Either, number one, you're not looking at God. Or, number two, you're whack. It's a bad sign. Like, you, something has been malformed if you can look at God and not worship. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the, has a picture of the throne room, and all around God is worship. Like, everyone who sees God worships. The angels who are right there next, next to him, they all worship, they cry out holy. And in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, there are elders, there's angels, there's weird creatures, and then I love in chapter 5 it says, in heaven, on the earth, and underneath the earth, they all cry what? Worthy. Everyone. Why? Because they see him. Like the only practical response to an experience of the presence of God or to seeing God is worship. It's impossible to look at God, experience Him, and not worship. If that's a reality, that's a bad sign. And the more that we encounter the presence of God around here, the more that worship is going to be who we are. Like why do we worship so much? Why is worship the second banner? It's because it's the only one that could be the second banner. Like you can't move any of the other ones to the second banner. It doesn't make sense. The only logical flow out of experiencing the presence of God is worship. Because worship is always about, it is always about a right response to seeing something great. That's what worship is. You see something great, you respond to it. Yesterday, Kentucky was schooling Florida. I mean, ruled those suckers. You know, when Josh Harrelson grabs a two-handed rebound, and even though he's a white guy who can't jump very good, and he dunks it, I'm off the couch because that's something great. You know what that's called? It's called worship. No, am I bowing down and worshiping Josh Harrelson? No, but that's the picture. Every time we see something great in God, the only logical response is a life of worship. Every time we encounter the Lord, there's going to be worship. So blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. You know, worship's always been kind of a big deal around here at the vineyard. I got news for you. It's going to be a bigger deal. It's not becoming a less deal. It's becoming a bigger deal. And that's good and that's right. One of the ways that you know that you're, that you're increasing in intimacy with Jesus, one of the ways that you know that, that your life is on the right path is if you can honestly say, in my heart of hearts, worship is beginning to increase. Like, whether I'm singing songs or not is irregardless. That's, you know, there's a million ways to worship. But is, is thankfulness becoming more of who I am? Like, 
do I realize that everything I have in life is not because I was smart and strong and well-organized, but it was because God was good to me. Like, can I, can I just offer him the, the most base form of worship, which is thankfulness? If you're increasing in thankfulness, you're going to increase in the presence of God. It's what it says in, in Psalm chapter 100. It says, enter his courts with praise and what? Thanksgiving. Like, how do you encounter his presence? You encounter his presence by coming in with thanksgiving. No one, the secret code in the kingdom of heaven is thanksgiving. You don't get into the presence of God without the password at the door. And the password is thanksgiving. Every time. So there's this, we dwell with him and we worship. Worship is a sure sign you're a presence person. Verse 5. And blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Who is the strong person? The strong person is blessed, and the strong person is the one whose heart cry is, My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. That's what the strong person is. How do you have your strength in God? Well, the, the first way you have your strength in God is to realize that that your own strength is completely insufficient for anything significant. When I get emptied of my strength, Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. And so for anyone who wants, wants to walk in the strength of the Lord, there has to be this increasing awareness that, that I'm a weak person. Spiritual maturity isn't becoming more sure of oneself, it's becoming more sure that you're unsure. That was a really confusing way to say it, but you, you people are smart, and so you got it. But spiritual, spiritual maturity is becoming more and more aware of your own weakness and more and more aware to the degree that you really need the Lord, that I need the Lord. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time now, and one of the things, that, as a 32-year-old man, that I realize now that I don't realize when I was 22 is that I'm just not good. I'm just, I'm, I'm not good. Like, I don't walk around with like this super like heavy thing. That's not the point. It's not, it's not like, oh God, I'm, I'm an unworthy, blah, blah, blah. That's not the point. But there, there's an awareness in my own life that certainly wasn't there 10 years ago that, that I'm not the source. I'm not the strength. It's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm strong. It's not because I've planned more than everyone else. It's just because God's been good. That's it. <clears throat> So blessed is the person whose strength is in, in God. Blessed is the person who set the heart on pilgrimage. What is the pilgrimage that the psalmist is talking about? Well, it, in reality, it looks like this. Three times a year, Israel is commanded, come to the tabernacle, come to the temple, everybody, everyone come and worship God three times a year. And so they would go on pilgrimage. They would come from all over Israel and they would come into Jerusalem. But what is the pilgrimage that he's really talking about here? The pilgrimage that the psalmist is really talking about here is the pilgrimage of the heart. It's the pilgrimage that says, my life's journey is to God. My life's journey is to have the kind of heart that says, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's not totally who I am right now, but my journey is to be the kind of person whose heart and flesh cries out for the living God, who faints without the presence of the Lord. That's my journey. My journey is to God and it's with God. My heart is on a pilgrimage. My whole life destination is toward the Lord. Look at verse 6. And on this pilgrimage, they pass through the valley of Bacah, and they make it a place of springs, and the autumn rains cover it with pools. A couple things about the valley of Bacah. The valley of Bacah, it's translated as the valley of tears. And no one 
This is, this is really important because we need to grab hold of this. No one whose heart is, my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. No one whose heart is, my heart is on pilgrimage toward God, is guaranteed an easy life. In fact, everyone who sets their heart on pilgrimage toward God is guaranteed a couple things. And one of the things you're guaranteed is hardship. Everyone is going to go through the Valley of Bacah. Every single person on their pilgrimage is going to go through the Valley of Tears. They're going to, you're going to go through the, the Valley of Hardship and hard times and desert places. You're going to. But here's the good news, and I want you to see this. In verse 6, he says, As I pass through the Valley of Bacah, we're not, we're not making a tent there, and we're not living there. We're just passing through. It's part of the journey. It's part of the process. There's, pain is part of the process. We're not camping out, but we're going through. Everyone who wants to do something significant, everyone who lives in significant fellowship with the Lord Jesus will go through the Valley of Bacah. You will go through the, through the dark night of the soul, and you will go through the Valley of Tears. But here's the other part that's good news. There's further good news. They pass through the Valley of Bacah, and they make it a place of springs. There's a bit of a, a play on words here. They pass through the Valley of Tears, and they make it a place of springs. How do they make it a place of springs? It's with the tears they cry. There's something about, there's something about God that all of our pain counts. It's not as though He brings it into our life, but he, he gives purpose to all of our pain. And so every tear, every hardship that I've endured especially those that, are, that, that I've received because I have made the choice to be on pilgrimage toward God, all of my tears end up becoming a fountain for someone who comes behind me. See, no one in here got to where you're at because you were smart and strong. You got here because God was good and he put people in front of you. And a lot of times in our desert places, we get refreshed by someone else's pain. They come alongside us and say, I've been there, I've done that, drink this. All of our pain counts in God. Don't take on a martyr syndrome and go looking for pain. It's just built in. That would be stupid. So we get to transform the valley as we go. Part of the kingdom of heaven is not just looking for the good things, but part of the kingdom of heaven is saying, how can I take God into the desert place? Like, how can I go and go into the place where there is no water and, and make it a place of refreshing? Everyone who's done something significant. Everyone who's lived a significant life with God goes through the valley of Bacah. And that pain ends up being transformative to that valley. And we can endure because we're on a, on a pilgrimage toward His presence. Um, John Wimber was the founder of the Vineyard Movement. If you guys haven't read any like John Wimber books, you really need to. We're a Vineyard Church. You should, you should do it. He's a dynamic man. Um, and, and if you don't know like some John Wimber history, I'll, I'll just give you a little bit. Um, John Wimber was like a rock and roll musician back in the day and got really touched by Jesus. He didn't know anything about God. God radically saved him. Um, and a little later on in his life, he was college professor and really was was great at like helping people grow their churches and then a little bit past that he really got encountered uh the holy spirit through a man named lonnie frisbee and just a radical touch of god came on his life especially in the area of healing especially in the area of healing and um john limber had 
he's truly one of those guys who had set his heart on pilgrimage, and is, he's truly one of those guys who over and over had said, my heart and flesh cry out for you, God. And, but at the same time, John Wimber's a guy who passed through the Valley of Bacaw. And, and I, one of the things I want you to know is this, is that no one sitting in the chairs this morning, especially like regulars here at the vineyard, no one... Like, we wouldn't do ministry the way we do if it wasn't for the fact that John Wimber went through the Valley of Tears. Like, he paid a price, and we take it as normal now. We drink it every, every week when we get together, and someone comes up here and needs physical healing, and they get healed. And it happens almost every week, even though we don't say anything about it. Every single person who does the ministry, receives the ministry, and gets the benefit is drinking out of the fountain of his tears. It cost him something. You realize John Wimber died and he was only 63 years old and he's got one of the most radical healing anointings in the past hundred years. So, like him and probably two other guys were probably the most anointed dudes on North America in the past hundred years, especially in the areas of healing. And he dies at age 63 from a heart attack and his body was utterly falling apart. Why? Because he went through the Valley of Bacaw. It's that thing. It's like, why is the healing minister unable to heal himself? I don't know. It doesn't make sense, but I know that, that his pain has become our benefit. I know that his tears have become our fountain that we drink out of and oftentimes take for granted. You know, uh, we're also like, we're a church that embraces the gifts of the Holy Spirit and especially the gift of prophecy. You can't have a, a healthy, functioning, strong church without prophetic encouragement. And it's really normal here. Like, you can't cough without somebody prophesying to you here at the vineyard. Like, if you come three Sundays in a row, someone's going to corner you, you know? And we like that. That's good. Like, my heart, my, my life has been changed by prophetic ministry. I remember the first time that I went to, uh, uh, to Morningstar. Ray and I went, and this was a long time ago. This was, I don't know, 1999 or something like that. Maybe, maybe before that. Oh, I wasn't married, yeah. So it would have been, uh, no, gosh, it could have been. 97, so like 1997, we're talking years ago, and uh, Ray and I, we go, and at, at the end of the meeting, they have prophetic ministry, just like we do, these really strange little booths, and I go in this booth, and they say, we, uh, we don't want to know anything about you, all we want to know is your name, and I'm in there with these three, like two really, really, really old ladies, and this one, like young guy who just looked completely clueless, I mean, that was just my impression as soon as I walked through, I'm like, this is weird, this is going to be lame, that's what I'm thinking, I walk in, they say, we don't want to know anything about you, other than your name. I said, well, my name is Adam. And, and before my butt had even touched the seat, uh, the, the one lady says, well, Adam, you're a musician and you're a worshiper in the house of the Lord. It's the anointing that's on your life. You're called to live, la da 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 She read my entire, I mean, it was, uh, what? I almost fell on the floor. What was the point? In that moment, more than any moment up to that point, I knew that God knew who I was. Like, God knew me. We need the prophetic. Can I tell you something, though? We take for granted every Sunday here. And this is, this is, I'm not like saying, we shouldn't feel guilty about this. I'm just telling you how life works. We take for granted the fountain that we drank out of that Rick Joyner and John Paul Jackson and Mike Bickle paid for with their own tears. Like those men, they, they got beat up over what we take for granted right now. Everyone who wants to do something significant with God goes through the valley of Bacah. You, you want to you follow Jesus? You're going through the valley. The good news is, though, that your pain counts. The tears, they don't, just, they don't just hit the ground and evaporate. They become pools, especially if we stay committed to God. They become pools. And the people and the generations and those around us who come behind us, 
it becomes a point of refreshing for them. The, vow, the desert doesn't have to be that spot anymore. It's part of what God wants to do with, in, in the kingdom of heaven. Is he, wants, he wants his spirit to so rest on people that we can go through the valley. And, and, and eventually, one of the things that's going to happen, this is a bit prophetic, but one of the things that's eventually going to happen is God's going to take enough of his people through the valley of Bacah that it is no longer a desert and no longer a hard place. It's just, it's just an oasis because we've just, we've just dug fountains all along the way. And you can't even go along the, along the life of hardship without meeting a fountain. Unless you decide, I'm not going to drink of the fountain. You know, it's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to take our life. He wants to make it count. He wants to lead you into a place where you become not just something for yourself, but where your life becomes something that counts for someone else in another time and maybe even a generation you won't meet. See, devotion to Jesus matters. It really matters. Like, loving his presence, this, this matters. So we talked about John Wimber, we talked about Rick Joyner a little bit, and then one of my other favorite guys is this guy named John Huss. And John Huss was a reformer back in the 1500s. And he was 100 years before Calvin and Luther. And um, you, like church history doesn't remember John Huss. Like, the, he's utterly forgotten, except he's one of the most important men of the last thousand years. Like before John Huss, no one knew, like, like things that we take utterly for granted, like priesthood of every believer, like, people didn't even know that. They didn't even know that they should know that. They just thought, well, I'll go to the church and the priest takes care of everything. I'm done. I can't know God. I just have to sit there and listen to a mass that's in Latin and I don't know it. And, and, and not only that, but before John Huss, like, people didn't know how to be saved. Like, they would just run into the forest and they, this is a bit dramatic, but they would just run into the forest and they would just, like, pray and fast and, like, camp and cry out to God and wail and moan and beg God to save them. And they would never live, never even have one day in their life. Most people would never even have one day in their life that God loved them and he approved of them and he, that he would take them into his house at the end of the age. Live their whole life within it. With, why? Because it just wasn't out there until a man named John Huss came and said, no, things that are going on in the church is not okay. It's not okay to sell indulgences. That's not God's heart. You don't pay for your salvation. You just come to him. And when you come to him, he'll accept you if you just believe on his son. Like that sounds normal to us, right? Like 1400s, wasn't normal. People didn't know that. You know what they did to John Huss? They burned him at the stake. They burned him at the stake. He went through the Valley of Bacah. And now we all drink from his fountain. And this is one of the cool things. When they tried to light him on fire, guess what happened? It wouldn't light. And they kept trying to light it on fire, and it wouldn't light. They eventually got him lit, but it was a word from the Holy Spirit saying, don't do this. Consider what you're about to do. Yeah, come on. We're presence people. It counts. Everything counts. And if you want to be a presence person, you're going to pass through. You're not going to live there, but you're going to pass through the valley of tears. Verse 10. These are the cries of the the person who's, who's on pilgrimage and whose heart is toward the Lord. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. What's he saying? He's saying it's a thousand times better around you, God, than any player sells. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Psalmist is saying God's worst is better than the devil's best. He's saying like the worst that God can do me is, is better than anything that the world can give me. 
And this is one of those areas where we need, we need, we need renewed mind. We need tra- transformed thinking. You know, life isn't about accumulation of more stuff. It's about accumulation of his presence. It's, it's about saying, God, I would rather live on the edge of your kingdom in your approval than be the richest dude on this planet. I would, I would, that's my heart. And that's the heart that we, that's, that's got to be our heart. It can't just be my heart. It's got to be our heart. I would rather be a doorkeeper. Yeah, here's the deal, church. However hard we pursue careers, however hard we pursue goals, however hard we pursue all forms of achievement, there must remain a place in my heart where God is number one. You know? That place can only be filled by one person. That sounds like enough. Yeah, if you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up?